It's John 18, 1 to 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the, Kid- and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking at me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and its Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Aeneas, who was the father-in-law of Caius, the high priest that year. Caius was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask who have heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what it is wrong. But if I speak the truth, why did you strike me? Then Aeneas sent him, still bound, to Caius the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, Are you not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again Peter denied it, and at that moment a rooster began to crow. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray that um, you would help us now to uh, focus. Uh, We pray that by your spirit that we would grow in a deeper understanding of the great sacrifice that Jesus has made for us and its purpose. Uh, We pray for our children as they're taught in the hall as well, that you would be building them up in the knowledge uh, of uh, yourself and your son, Jesus. We ask these in his name. Amen. 
In the past, people have made statements about computers, which when we think back upon now, are really quite funny. Uh, for example, in 1943, the chairman of IBM made this statement. He said that, I think that there is a world market for a maximum of five computers in the world. Uh, in 1977, the chairman of the Digital Equipment Corporation said there is no reason why anybody would want a computer in their home. Um, even Bill Gates, as late as 1981, uh, speaking about the memory capacity of computers, said 640 kilobytes ought to be enough for anybody. Uh, put that into perspective, if you go down to Harvey Norman and you hand over about $1,500, they'll give you a computer that is one and a half million times that capacity. Um, on the other hand, there have been statements which have turned out to be much truer than ever envisaged by the person making the statement at the time. In 1949, Popular Mechanics magazine predicted, and get this, that in the future, computers may weigh as little as one and a half tonnes. <laughs> Today, of course, we carry them around in our pockets, in our briefcases, and that is how small they are. One and a half tonnes, I think that's about the weight of my station wagon, <laughs> something like that. Now, of course, when we look at uh, statements like these in hindsight, you know, they are mildly amusing. But there was one statement made in history which, above any other, was more true and more important than the speaker ever imagined. Uh, it's a statement that was recorded for us in John's Gospel, and if you've been with us over the last few months, uh, you'll recall that as Jesus conducted his ministry that the Jewish religious authorities became increasingly anxious about this itinerant preacher. Uh, they began to plot his death because they were concerned. They were concerned that unless someone did something to stop Jesus, that there would be a popular uprising amongst the people, that the Romans would come in and they would brutally crush that uprising. And more than that, the Jewish religious leaders would lose their position. Uh, it was the high priest who made the famous statement. Uh, he said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It was a statement which was far more true and far more important than the high priest ever imagined. For he foretold an event which would profoundly change the world forever. Uh, in that statement, unbeknownst to him, he foretold an event which would profoundly change lives even now, uh, even your life, even my life, the lives of people around us. And to understand this, today we turn to John chapter 18, uh, where we join Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a very sombre night. Jesus knew that the plot to kill him had been triggered. The betrayer 
had made his move. Uh, Jesus, with his disciples, now left the home where they had been sharing together in the Passover meal. And in verse 1, we read that they crossed over uh, by foot across the Kidron Valley. Uh, The Kidron, by the way, is a small stream that uh, runs uh, alongside the, the temple in Jerusalem. And on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. And at the foot of the Mount of Olives is a garden. Uh, It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there, in that garden, that Jesus, with his disciples, would pray and wait. Judas knew where Jesus would be. Uh, We don't know if they'd had a discussion earlier that night and to say that after the meal that they would go to the garden. But what we do know in verse 2 is that uh, Jesus and his disciples often met there, that that was the place where they were likely to have spent their time. That was the place they were likely to be on that night. So this was Satan's long-awaited dark hour, a quiet lonely, dark place. A group of Jewish religious officials, a detachment of armed Roman soldiers led by the betrayer himself, now they could show Jesus who was in control. But who really was in control that night? Roman soldiers were probably the best soldiers in the world. Uh, The Romans had conquered most of the world around them. Their soldiers were the uh, best trained in skills and in strategy. They were the best equipped soldiers in the world at the time. And they had come to the garden on this night uh, to make a simple arrest. But instead, in verses 4 through to 11, they found themselves confronted confronted by a very commanding figure in the person of Jesus. Now, notice that John says nothing about the kiss, where Judas actually kissed Jesus. The other gospel writers do mention to us that kiss. Uh, John leaves that detail out, and it seems that John is more concerned in his account to show us how Jesus was in fact the one who was in control on that night. The soldiers and Jewish officials probably expected Jesus to try to avoid arrest, to run or to put up a fight. But what do we see instead happen? In verse 4, as they approach the disciples in the garden, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus walks right up to them and eyeballs them. And he says to them, and he asks them straight, who is it that you want? Now, um, Jesus knew who they wanted, but he wasn't going to be on the back foot. He wasn't going to run. He wasn't ashamed. No, now they are the ones who are on the back foot. They have to explain themselves to Jesus. And so they do. Jesus of Nazareth. That's the one who we're after. Now, when Jesus says directly to them with boldness, without hesitation, when he says to them, I am he, 
How did they react? Verse 6. In verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, look at this, they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, they, 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 they fell to the ground. They collapsed. What? We're not told why. We could only speculate. Maybe it's because of the words that Jesus used. Uh, he actually said to them, I am. The word he is actually sort of being put into the text there into, in, the, in, in the NIVs. And that's a reasonable thing to do. But he actually said to them, I am. Now, to the Jews amongst them, they may have recognised that that is the name of God. That is a claim that he had been making. Maybe. But whatever the, re the case, whatever the reason they, f they, they withdrew and they fell to the ground, what we do see is that there is something absolutely commanding about Jesus. Um, we see it. Even when Peter pulled out a sword and he took a swipe and he sliced off the ear of one of the servants of the chief priests. What did Jesus do? Well, first of all, we're told in the other Gospels that he actually put the guy's ear back, healed it. That's extraordinary. But in the second part of verse, in verse 11 there, Jesus commanded Peter. And he said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, Jesus is unnerving. I mean, his enemies thought that this was their moment. This was their opportunity to, to, to uh, express some control over Jesus and to have Jesus exactly where they wanted Jesus to be. But it seems that they are only doing exactly what Jesus wants. And it may well have seemed that way to them as well. He's a commanding and unnerving character. And so in verses 12 to 4, Jesus is finally under arrest. Let's have a look at that, shall we? Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had, who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, uh, who then did they take Jesus to? They took him to? Annas. Who was Annas? Verse 13, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? Caiaphas was the high priest. Now, we read a little bit about this, this uh, interaction that takes place between Jesus and Annas in verses 19 to 24. I'd like to actually read that for us, please, because it's a, it's a helpful section to read. Uh, verse 19, have a look at that. Uh, meanwhile, the high priest, that is Annas, um, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, 
there's, there's no conspiracy that I've been on about here. I'm not trying to organise some sort of a rebellion against everything that I've said is public domain. It says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now here's my question. Who is the high priest? Uh, is Caiaphas the high priest or is Annas the high priest? Because here, both of them are referred to as the high priest, aren't they? That raises another question for me, and that is the question, well, what is a high priest? And there's another question I want to ask. Uh, because in verse 3, when they went to the garden to arrest Jesus, there was a a group of officials who'd come from the chief priests. So who are the chief priests? What's a, what's a chief priest as opposed to a high priest? And why is Annas called the high priest and Caiaphas also called the high priest? Now, these are not trivial questions, actually, because they're important questions about who these people are. They're important questions because... They help us to understand more about what was actually happening to Jesus. Uh, let me explain. Let's go back to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God set apart, God anointed the brother of Moses, whose name was Aaron. Aaron, who was from the, uh, the, the tribe of, uh, of Levi, uh, Aaron and his sons were to be the priests at the tent of meeting. The, uh, before they built the temple, there was a tent uh, which was where the priests uh, ministered. Uh, the role of a priest was to be a mediator between God and man. Um, priests served at this tent of meeting and then later, after the time of Solomon, they served at the temple. And they had a multiplicity of functions. And by the way, the priests worked very hard. Uh, you read through the book of Leviticus and uh, what they were supposed to do in their daily duties. It was hard work. There was a lot of work to be done. Their main role was to offer up sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And so they would slaughter bulls and sheep and goats and birds and they would give up grain offerings of uh, unleavened bread and so on. And they would do so on a daily basis for a whole variety of different reasons. You see, because God is a holy God and because of our sin we are unholy, it is not the case that, that we can simply roll up to God as if we're best mates. Now, a price must be paid. A penalty must be paid for sin and blood must be shed. You see, uh, in, in, in Leviticus, 
there are food laws. And one of the food laws is that uh, God's people are not to consume the blood of an animal. And you know why that is? It's because blood is the thing which gives an animal life. And the blood, uh, blood sacrifices are offered up at the altar in order to redeem life, in order to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have a life which is lived in relationship with God. Now, the descendants of Aaron uh, and were, were all of Israel's priests. Uh, but there was only one priest who could enter the most holy place in the tent of meeting or the temple and he did so in order to offer up a sacrifice for the whole nation, to pay for the sins of the nation, to pay for the sins of the people. And that man, of course, was the high priest, of which Aaron was the first. And so the role of the priests, especially the high priest, was a spiritual role to offer up sacrifices to God to pay for sin, to shed blood to buy back life, a life lived with God, a life so that men and women could be forgiven and enjoy relationship with God, the very purpose for which we've been created. That was the role of the priesthood. But here's my question. Is that what we see going on here in John, John chapter 18? No, it is not what we see here. I mean, certainly, obviously, uh, they did perform all of the religious duties, especially at Passover time at the temple. But by the time we get to the first century, the priesthood was corrupted by status and power and prestige. Um, what about the chief priests? Who were they? Well, the chief priests, they were a group of priests who represented the priestly families and they joined in with other religious leaders, the lay leaders, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, to form what was known as the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And the high priest was chosen from amongst the chief priests. In John chapter 18, both Annas and Caiaphas are described as being the high priest. And the reason for that is this. You see, Annas used to be the high priest, uh, but he wasn't anymore. And more than that, he wasn't appointed by God to be the high priest. No, Annas had been appointed by Quirinius, who was the pagan governor of Syria, a Roman, appointing God's high priest. It was a political appointment. And after Annas, five of his sons in succession were all appointed to the role of high priest until we get to this passage where Caiaphas, who's married Annas's daughter, has been given that role. But, friends, what happens when, when a leader or a ruler passes the job on to his sons? Who remains the ruler behind the scenes? 
It's the father. And so there we have Annas, who is actually the behind-the-scenes ruler of his succession of sons and now his son-in-law. And so it is to him that they take Jesus to first for judgment. He's still considered to be the high priest. And of course, in the Old Testament, high priest was lifelong appointment. So they send Jesus to Annas, who mistreats Jesus. It's not right that he should be uh, hit uh, for doing nothing wrong. And in verse 24, Annas sends him to Caiaphas. They were most likely in the same house. We know that because Peter, well, we'll hear about Peter later. Peter was in the courthouse, the courtyard of that house at that time. Sent him to Caiaphas, who then hands Jesus over to the pagan governor Pilate. And we'll hear more about that next week. Question. Are either of these men, Caiaphas or Annas, performing the role of the high priest? Well, on one hand, no, they're politicians, aren't they? But in another sense, in a sense which they did not intend, in a sense which they did not comprehend, they were in fact performing the greatest role of the high priest. For when they were handing over Jesus, what were they really doing? They were offering up the greatest sacrifice of all time. I mean, since the time of Aaron, Israel's priests had offered up literally millions and millions of sacrifices at the altar. They were going to do a quarter of a million sacrifices that particular Passover. Millions upon millions and millions of that, that changed the colour of the Kidron you know, river into scarlet because of the blood. And none of those sacrifices could pay for sin. Annas and Caiaphas did not know it, but they were now offering up God's own son who alone can pay for sin so that people like you and I can be forgiven. In fact, on this very night, there is one man who began to realise his own need for forgiveness. Who is it? Verse 15, it's Peter. Verse 15 is interesting because we're told that Peter and another disciple had followed Jesus to the home of the high priest. Um, we don't know exactly who the other disciple was. Um, it was probably John, uh, the author of the Gospel, uh, for reasons that I've outlined for you in your bulletins there. But if John leaves it vague, then I take it that we don't really need to know. It's not imperative. What we do need to know is about forgiveness. Earlier that night, Peter had boldly declared his allegiance to Jesus, hadn't he? Uh, remember he said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And yet, only a few hours later on this very night, he denied Jesus. Let's have a look at that. Verse 17. In verse 17, uh, Peter is uh, about to enter into the uh, 
the courtyard of the high priest. There's a girl on duty at the door there, young girl, and she says to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter, and he replied, I am not. They go down to verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. When the detachment of soldiers and the Roman representatives had gone into the Garden of Gethsemane and they went up to Jesus and Jesus went up to them and they said, We're after Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am. Boldly. Peter says the opposite. He denies that he's associated with Jesus. And then thirdly, in verse 26, one of the high priest's servant, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, why did Peter deny Jesus on that night? Well, Again, we don't, it's not spelt out for us, but it's probably because Peter was torn. He was torn between, on the one hand, his devotion to Jesus, and on the other hand, his fear of what might happen to him. Legitimate fear. I mean, after all, the third person who challenged him had actually seen him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was a disciple of Jesus. More than that, not only had he seen him, but he was a relative of the person whose ear Peter had cut off. Very good reason why Peter would be fearful. But friends, what Peter did was sin. You see, uh, Jesus had once said, and it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 10, he said, in a very high priestly way actually, he said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Three strikes. And when the, when the rooster crowed in verse 27, the other gospel writers tell us, that Peter remembered that Jesus had predicted his denial and he was overcome by guilt and shame and sadness to the extent that he broke down and wept bitterly. What hope was there for Peter? Peter's only hope was forgiveness. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? It's, it's true for you, it's true for me. Uh, for no matter who we are and no matter how we live, we have all got a need for God's forgiveness, don't we? And not always put God first. We need forgiveness. And friends, when that rooster crowed in verse 27, not only did it signal the fulfilment of what Jesus had said earlier that night, it also signalled that the sun would soon rise on the very first Good Friday. For here in this passage we enter into Good Friday, something which we're going to celebrate in less than two weeks, isn't it? 
And uh, Easter is a great time for celebration. Um, in our community, what, what is Easter about for many people? It's been hijacked, hasn't it? For many people, it's about what the three things that I can think of. It's about chocolate eggs, um, hot cross buns, and a good old-fashioned Australian long weekend. <laughs> it's a great time, Easter. That's what people like. That's what people look forward to. But the greatest need, the need of all people, is to experience the forgiveness of God through the sacrifice of his son. And actually, let me say that Good Friday is a brilliant time to invite non-Christian friends to come to church to. Uh, I found that there are many people, or at least some people I know, who realise that there is more to Easter than just chocolate and hot cross buns and long weekend. There are people who are seeking after some greater reality. There are people who realise they have a need. And here on Good Friday, we're just going to be continuing our series of um, sermons from John's Gospel. Uh, next week we look at the, um, the, the, the trial before Pilate. And on Good Friday, uh, we look at the crucifixion from chapter 19 and Easter Sunday uh, the empty tomb. So can I encourage you to be thinking and praying about those who you would invite along because I assure you that on Good Friday the message of forgiveness will be clearly explained and helpfully explained. Because friends there is hope, there is hope that we find in this very passage because in the midst of the blackness of that terrible night what does John remind us of? He reminds us of what Caiaphas had once said. He reminds us that the high priest himself had said it would be good for one man to die for the people. Caiaphas meant that for evil. God meant it for good. Caiaphas had no idea just how true his statement was. But it was God's plan all along. The Jews and the Roman soldiers thought that they were in control when they stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus is in control. It has always been God's plan that one man should die for all the people. That one man is Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom that there has been a system of sacrifices, the shedding of blood for the redeeming of life. Father, we thank you for the fulfilment of that which we see in the ultimate sacrifice, the precious Lamb of God, Jesus, your only Son. We thank you that even in the midst of that evil, that the handing over of Jesus by the high priest to be sacrificed has in fact brought forgiveness and hope and eternal life for all who turn to you. We thank you for this. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.